Good morning. As uh, Stephen said, his voice is a little weak, so he asked you to sing louder. My voice is also a little strained, so you need to listen louder is all I know how to help us get through this. No, it is good to be together. It is great to be together. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to flip them over to Hebrews chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, please do take a, a pewback Bible in front of you. We have so many blessings to live at this point in history that the Lord would appoint us to be able to live here in not only Nacogdoches, but to live at this point in history with technology, uh, with a heater, right, with all the different technologies, automobiles, uh, computers, everything else. We are richly blessed by God. But in a season like this, this advent, this arrival, this welcoming of the Lord that we orient our lives around this time of year, it can also be a difficulty because it can create a gap of understanding of what many of the roles that Jesus came to fulfill actually are. Simply because we're, we're distanced as we live in this, of course, age of grace and gospel proclamation that is to be the local church. And this gap can make it difficult when we think about the baby in the manger that was coming, that we're preparing for, that we're looking forward to and celebrating. What exactly did he come to do? What did he come to fulfill? So my prayer, our hope during this series, these five different sermons that will highlight different elements of Christ's fulfilled ministry and that he had come to accomplish. How do we understand that in light of understanding that you and I don't have a lot of experience with the idea of a prophet? As we speak this morning about the fact that Jesus is the perfect prophet. Well, prophets, in this sense, certainly are not around in that way today. But we have the Lord's good revelation, His good word, and we consult the Bible, and we have Bible studies, and we gather together to look at the word and to live out the word together. So how do we understand Christ is the perfect prophet? We're going to look at that today, but next week, Keith is going to lead us through a discussion of Jesus being the perfect priest. So distant, thousands of years ago, from the priestly sacrificial system, how do we understand Jesus is the perfect priest that he would come to fulfill that little baby in the manger? What about the perfect sacrifice? We're away from the sacrificial system, and we live in a culture that isolates itself from death and bleeding. So how do we understand the significance of our sin demanding blood, even in this way, the blood of the Messiah, the blood of the one that would come as a baby? How do we understand the idea that he is the perfect king when we don't live in, a, in that type of government-led structure? We don't live in a theocracy. We, we live in a democratic republic. How do we understand that Jesus' role and responsibility as, as Lord is king, that he had come to fulfill and he reigns evermore? And how do we understand the Lord's responsibility as the perfect shepherd when you and I don't interact with shepherds uh, in that sense, really at all culturally. Last I checked, SFA has no shepherding majors that are taking place there. So how do we understand Jesus' role and responsibility that he would come in these five different areas that will finish at our Christmas Eve service? As you turn your Bibles and you, you keep them there on Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 4, this morning you're forewarned we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures, many of which I'm not going to afford you the time to look them up for time's sake. But I would encourage you to write them down this, of all the sermons I've had the opportunity to lead us through in the last several months, this is probably going to be one of the more challenging academically because it's going to force us, when we think about the baby in the manger, 
we're forced to think about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal, that the Son would come and would take on the full nature of a man. So what we're going to do in our text and and the Bible passage is going to make us do this. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we sing to? And and we're going to clarify some words and some phrases, and we're going to set up some some clear boundaries that Christians have, have had for many years as we see them from the text. But know that this morning it might be a little bit more challenging than normal. So uh, I just encourage you to, to, to keep notes frantically. And praise the Lord, we have a recording of this too, if you need to go back and listen to it uh, even louder. So as you have your Bibles, again, let's notice first and foremost as we dive into this that Jesus is the perfect prophet, big idea. He is the ultimate messenger and the ultimate message. Jesus is the perfect prophet. He is the ultimate messenger and the ultimate message. The ultimate messenger and the ultimate message. So let's begin. The perfect prophet is the ultimate messenger from God. Three different elements we're going to unpack to demonstrate this. And the first we'll see in verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 is that Jesus was foretold of by the previous prophets. Jesus was foretold of by the previous prophets. And the ESV reads like this. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Two very clear and simple statements to write down of which the Christian faith largely rests upon. If you can understand them and believe them, it really gets a lot of the scripture in a really precise and helpful nutshell. Genesis 1.1 and Hebrews 1.1. Genesis 1.1 and Hebrews 1.1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. Right away, that begins to form for us an understanding of who we are. We are creation. We're not creator. In the beginning, God created. And then this second element, Hebrews 1.1, that God has spoken to us in his Son. So not only did God create, but he has spoken to us in an authoritative way through his Son. To know His Son is, in this way, to know God. To hear from the God that created us, that created all the vastness of the universe. The incredible amounts of planets and galaxies that the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth, would create us and desire for us to know Him. That He has ultimately revealed Himself through His Son. Genesis 1.1 and Hebrews 1.1. The very foundation of what we have is believers. The prophets of old, they came and they foretold people to repent. They, they foretold people to live accordingly to the law, to the word of God. And there were consequences if they didn't. And they experienced many of them. And the constant cry was that of repentance and realigning yourself with the word of God. But they also had a second purpose. When we think of prophets, we usually think of foretelling of the future. The prophets had a responsibility to foretell of this one that would come, The Messiah Christ, it's the same idea, the anointed one of God that would come and he would lay his life down. He would come and he would fulfill all these different distinctives and roles and responsibilities. And they gave this character sketch of who he would be, where he would live, what he would do, how he would die. And Jesus fulfills all of them. The Old Testament points forward to Christ. It says, God has spoken to our fathers, the Hebrew people, old, by the prophets, 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. One theologian phrases it this way. I find it very helpful. Without the Old Testament, the New Testament has no meaning. But without the New Testament, the Old Testament has no goal. I'll say that again. Without the Old Testament, the New Testament has no meaning. It's the Old Testament that gives us our foundation and understanding of how God has revealed himself that paves the way, that makes the way for Christ, where we're able to see how the puzzle piece of who Jesus is, the one in the manger, makes everything click. But without the Old Testament, or without the New Testament, the Old Testament has no goal. It's not working in a direction, as it certainly is progressing for us. God spoke long ago in many ways. To Abram and to other uh, patriarchs, he spoke in very clear tone and clear voice. To Moses on Mount Sinai, he speaks to him in thunder as he gives him the commandments. To Elijah, he speaks to him in a still, small voice. Through the angels and his messengers, angels meaning messengers as well, he, he speaks to many through angels. But but ultimately, he is spoken through whom? Through the Son. Christ is the ultimate messenger. So if we're having a crisis of faith and we're thinking to go to anybody else, we go to a prophet or we go to, to any of the Old Testament figures, what do they do? They point us back to Christ. Their ministries are ultimately signposts that lead us to look forward to Jesus. And this in Hebrews is a big idea of the argument. You have ethnic Hebrew Christians who many of them are being enticed to possibly abandon Christ and go back to a prior way of life. And the author is giving us this clear sermon that is this battle cry of saying, listen, if you go back to any prophet of old, like a bouncy ball, you're going to bounce right back to Christ. I was talking to Jenny Jones, our, our, our preschool director, and John Hayes, our children's pastor. They do a wonderful job, and they strongly recommend uh, a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you're looking for a book to recommend or to buy for a little one during this Christmas season, I, I strongly recommend it as well. Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author, she says it this way, every story whispers his name. Every story of Scripture whispers his name. 2 Corinthians 1, 19-20 says it this way, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanius and Timothy and I, he was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God, given to the prophets of old, find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So tell me about this Jesus. Tell me about this one that we read about. Look, B, secondly. Tell me about Jesus. Well, here you go. Verse 2. He's going to pick it up as he continues on, that Jesus is God, the eternal Son in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. It's the easiest way to say it. Jesus, who is the eternal Son, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Son taking on the full nature of man, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is 100% God and 100% man. So let's say it together. Jesus is 100% God and 100% Beautiful. That's excellent. I'm glad Stephen got you fired up to start your singing. Your voice is already primed. This is good. Good time together. You know, when we think through this text, let me read this for us as I pick up in verse 2 to the beginning of verse 3. He says, Whom the Son, He, God the Father, appointed the heir of all things, through whom, through Jesus, through the Son, He created the world. 
And he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. We want to know God more accurately and intimately. To know God more accurately and intimately as he's revealed himself to us in his word. To know God more accurately and intimately, they're not enemies, they're friends. So if a spouse wants to know their spouse better, they ought to desire to study them more. To put the legwork in to see how they're doing, not a week ago, but today. Accuracy of understanding of who they are is a basis for intimacy. So as we walk through this, it will appear, at least at part, to be a little heady. And that's okay. So I encourage you to use this and use your motivation in this to say, you know, even if I get lost in a spot, that's okay. I'm going to jump right back on. Because I, I want to know God more accurately, more truthfully. And that means I'm going to probably have to stretch myself a little bit. We all are that way. Every one of us. So let me give you a few references to write down. Look at Psalm 2. Well, I'm not going to have time to look there, but you can write down Psalm 2, verse 8. All of Psalm 2, by the way, is a tremendous guide for the book of Hebrews. Psalm 2 and Psalm 101 are, are two key texts to look at frequently. But Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and the author of Hebrews here, he clearly ties into this in this verse. In Psalm 2.8, it says, Ask of me, and I, God, will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And that's what it said back in our text of Hebrews 1. He says he's appointed the heir of all things through whom he also he created the world. John 1.3 that Stephen read for us at the beginning of the service says of Jesus that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says it this way, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the, the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's 100% God, 100% man. There would be prophecies that would be given that he would become and he would be mighty counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. He must be God, but he also must be from the line of Eve. He must fulfill the Genesis 3 requirement that he would come from the line of Eve and David. So he must be God and he must be man. And that's who Jesus is. He is the perfect God-man. We're going to parse that out together in a moment, but fortunately we're not just now discovering this in 2018. Faithful believers for centuries have believed this. A few years ago, like 1,500 plus years ago, several Christians got together, and what happens a lot of times is when there's a lot of false teachings going around, what does the church tend to do through history? Hey, we need to really clarify this statement, and maybe the statement's already made all over the place, but let's just go ahead and squash this false teaching that's taking place. It's happening today. As a matter of fact, if we're to fast forward in history 100 years from now, you know what they'll look back and they'll say about a lot of Christian writings? If they didn't know our culture, they would look back and say, wow, you know what, around mid-early 2000s, the church seemed to be obsessed with biblical marriage. Man, they wrote a lot about sexuality and marriage. That's interesting. But why did they write against that? It's because the culture had moved in a certain way, but also the church was forced to say, hey, what do you believe about this? And that's the case here at this Council of Chalcedon where many believers got together to articulate what was already believed by most 
but to say, hey, this is who Jesus is. And it provides for us, we're going to look at just, I think, four different little bumpers. These little bumpers. Imagine bumpers on a bowling alley. You know what I'm talking about? When I was a kid, they used to have, I don't know if they still, do they do that down here where you blow up these giant tubes and can make you bowl a lot better? Or you guys have the high-tech pull-up things. Okay, I see how you're working down here. Technology hasn't quite hit Missouri yet, but it'll get there eventually. These bumpers, what do they do for us? The bumpers keep the ball in the lane, right? They keep you from going off into the gutter. That's what these statements that were given to the Council of Chalcedon helped to do. They helped to keep the ball in the lane. So you recognize, oop, I went in the gutter on that belief. A little inaccurate from what the Bible teaches. So these statements are helpful gutters for us, uh, bumpers to keep us from going into the gutters when we think about this one that arrives and comes in the manger, the person of Jesus the Christ. So, if you have your Bibles uh, and your pens ready, let's begin to look at several of those as we fill those in. First and foremost, Jesus is, he has two natures. He is God and man. Jesus has two natures. He is God and man. So he is one person, and yet he has two natures. A divine nature, a God nature, and also human nature. So he's not like God Jr. He's not like half God. He's not some Marvel character. He is fully God and fully man. Titus 2.13 of Jesus says he is the great God and Savior. Thomas's confession. Do you remember what he said? Thomas's confession. Upon seeing the resurrected Christ, bodily resurrected Christ, He looks to him and he confesses what? To Jesus? My Lord and my God. In other words, saying Yahweh, right here in the flesh. It's a statement of praise and worship and confession of who Jesus is. And does Jesus correct him? What happens in Revelation when the angels are worshipped? You know what they do? No, No, don't do it. Don't you worship me. They rebuke them. When Jesus is worshipped by Thomas in this confession that Jesus, the God-man, is his Lord and his God, Jesus receives the worship because he really is the eternal Son in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. He is God and man. It's the Son who comes and takes on fullness of humanity. So again, we think of the Trinity. God is a Trinity, one God eternally existing in three persons, co-eternal and co-equal. So the Father is not more God than the Son or than the Spirit. The Father wasn't before the Son, so it's not like the Father made the Son. The Son was never made. He's co-eternal, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son is the one that comes and takes on flesh, and He dwells among us in obedience to the Father. And his ministry is in the power of the Spirit. The fullness of what it is to be a man is what Jesus was. And always, we'll articulate that a little bit more, but understand it's not the Father that comes and takes on flesh. It's not the Father that comes into the manger. It's the Son who takes on flesh and dwells among us. It's the Word who's became flesh and dwelt among us. All of this has been laid out for us in the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes and the authors of the Gospels come, they begin to, oh... This is how this is all connected. It's not like the Old Testament's this spot where we say, let's get rid of it. No. The Old Testament lays out the map. It lays out the foundation. 
And Jesus himself comes and, oh, this is how all this fits together. He's the one that fulfilled all this. He fulfills all righteousness. So the one in the manger that comes, he's the perfect messenger. The little baby feet. The little Messiah that comes. He's the one that's the perfect prophet. He's the one that fulfills all righteousness. He's the one. So we celebrate because of who he is. Fully God, fully man. He is the God-man. It's the son that's come for us. And just as it is to be a human, he was hungry. He was thirsty. Remember, that's part of Satan's temptation against him in Matthew 4. He fasted for 40 days or 40 nights. If I go four hours, I get hungry. I try not to get hangry. Do you know what I'm talking about? All right, this is a true story. I just saw it happen. At least half of the men in here turned and looked at the women sitting beside them when I said the word hangry. So we need counseling for that. We'll know what to do in next seminar on. That's okay. That's good to know. <laughs> but, but Jesus, he was, he is fully God and fully man. So all that it is to be human, emotions, everything that comes with it, Jesus is that fully God, fully man. He is the God-man. He dwelt among us. He has two natures. And secondly, I touched on this briefly, but he is fully God and fully man. So each nature is full and complete. If you're filling in your blanks, that's your next spot. Each nature is full and complete. He is fully God and fully man. So everything that's essential to be God, Jesus is. When, when the Son comes and takes on flesh, the nature of a man, he doesn't, he's not 99% God and 1% man at that point. He's fully God and fully man. By nature of being God, he can't stop being God. Does that make sense? Right, just at a basic level, he can't stop being God. By nature of being God, he has to be God. He doesn't become 99% God and 1% man or some other percentage. He's fully God and fully man. So Colossians 2.9 says it this way. For in him, in Jesus, in the Christ, the anointed one, all the fullness of deity, all the fullness of who and what God is in this way, dwells in bodily form. And so Jesus is going to be able to say what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? He is the full nature of God. He's not some percentage figure. The fullness of nature. He is fully God and he is fully man. And when we say fully man, we have to clarify our language. We're not saying he's like a, a macho man, eating beef jerky and ripping them off and sitting back watching TV all day. I'm not saying he didn't like beef jerky. Who doesn't like beef jerky, okay? But, but he is fully man in that he is all that it is to be a man. He is. Locationally, he could only be at one place at one time. Just as a man grows in wisdom and stature and favor, so too did Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's Luke 2.52, if you're writing references down. So just as he wasn't when he was in the manger, he wasn't just laying there with his eyes open, just all-knowing in his humanity. Just as human beings grow in awareness and consciousness, Jesus grew in that way. Bodily, he had to grow. He didn't have superhuman strength which would be a super hard diaper to change, right? I'm, I'm just thinking about changing my son's diaper, how hard that is. If you're changing, okay, got a little weird there. Uh, but that's who he is. So the fullness of being a man, Jesus is. 
He is all that it is to be a man. He's, he's bound by time and space. He's growing and understanding. He's learning. And yet early on in life, he has a, this understanding. So remember when they go into Jerusalem and Jesus leaves his family, where does he go? He goes to whose house? His father's house the temp, at the temple. So, so he, his understanding grows and it, and it increases. So he's fully God. And as God, he knows all things. He's all powerful. He's holding the universe into existence. But as man, he is growing and learning. He is fully God and fully man, satisfying all the demands of Scripture that the Lord has set for us. Hebrews 2.17 says it this way. Why did he have to be God and man? How does this work together? Hebrews 2.17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Keith is going to help us look at next week. And thanks pertaining to God to make propitiation, this make right sacrifice, this looking on to absorb the wrath of God for the sins of the people. So he's in the line of Eve, but he's also a wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Jesus has two natures, God and man. He's fully God and fully man. And number three, this one a little quicker, but each nature remains distinct. Each nature remains distinct. So said another way, Jesus' humanity and divinity, they never change their essential properties, nor do they mix together. So the baby in the manger, the outward isn't human and the inward soul is God. It's not like that. It doesn't mix in that way. Right? It's not like one half of his body is God and one half is man. He's fully God and fully man and neither of those natures is infringed upon. So his human nature, for example, <clears throat> this is where I need to start listening louder. His human nature didn't cease. His human nature wasn't compromised. And his divine nature did not cease. And his divine nature did not compromise. Each nature remains distinct. And fourthly, Christ is only one person. He's only one person with two natures. Fully God, fully man. That's who the anointed one of God is. That's the one that we sing to. When the Son became incarnate in the flesh, He forever and fully has taken on the nature of a man. So Jesus right now, the right hand of the Father, is fully God, fully man. Bodily, He rose again. He has a physical body. Glorified, resurrected physical body, but a physical body. Fully God, fully man. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh took on flesh and dwelled among us. Galatians 4.4, 4, that's the book we're going to look at after this series is finished. It says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And John 8.58 says, Before God was, or before Abram was, I'm sorry, before Abram was, I am. He's one person, born under the law. But as fully God, fully man, this, this man that would have been about 30 years-ish old, Jesus, is able to look very clearly and honestly and say, Abram, Abraham, who lived 2,000 plus years ago, before he was, I am. Think about that. That'd be like me saying in the oldest town of Texas, hey, before Texas was, I am. 
I was. You'd think I was crazy. But Jesus is fully God, fully man, is able to say, before Abram was, I am. And that's true of Christ because he's fully divine. That's who Jesus is. He is the Son in the flesh. That's God's love for you. The Father would send the Son, and the Son in full obedience to the Father would come and would take on flesh, would dwell among us, would need to eat, would need to sleep, would be tempted in every way as we are as human beings, and yet He would be without sin. He would be mocked, He would be ridiculed, He would be beaten, He would be executed laying his life down as a sacrifice for my and your sins so that you might become heirs in Christ, so that we might become his people, the people for his own possession. That's the Messiah. That's the Christ. Everybody catch your breath. All right, let's go back into our text. Verse 4. Jesus is the perfect prophet, the ultimate messenger for this reason as well. He is superior to all the angels. Superior to all the angels. Verse 4 says, Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, inheriting in the sense that when he took on flesh... so. God, the eternal Son, Father, Son, and Spirit, one being, co-equal, co-eternal, the Son comes and He takes on the nature of a man, which means He would be, in this way, being under the law, below the angels. But what would take place after His humiliation, this humiliating experience, this suffering? What would happen after He would be crucified and dead and buried? He would be ascended. He would be glorified. And so it's this title that he has inherited, as it says here, having become as more superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is better. It's the apex of all of history. When somebody says something in this age of news overload, when you hear somebody make a statement, what do you usually ask them if they say something that sounds strange or unusual to you? Where did you hear that? Who told you that? You've said that, haven't you? If you hear a rumor about yourself, what do you say? Who told you that? So imagine the Hebrew people that are tempted to abandon Christ. Well, who, who tempted you to that? Even if it's another human, and even if it's in, what's the same verse for? An angel. Guess what? Since it's different than the perfect prophet, since it's different than the message and messenger of Jesus Christ, the Son in flesh, it is true or False. It's false. If you abandon the truth and you go to another messenger, even if that messenger is an angel, it is false. And we may think, you know what, I have not had coffee with angels very often. How does that pertain to me? Think about the multitude of religions. Jehovah's Witnesses falsely claim that Jesus is an angel rather than God. Joseph Smith, Mormonism, a hold in this country and spreading around to the world to different places. Joseph Smith claims that an angel appeared to him. And told him a multitude of things. That's the primary witness. 
Muhammad claimed that an archangel visited him and gave him the beginnings of what would be the Quran. Millions of Americans use spirit mediums for their future and for wisdom on a daily life. Last month, it was reported that about 1.5 million Americans are Wiccans or pagans as their religion. Jesus says, and the Word says, if even an angel, if even an angel should say something opposite, let them be accursed, it says in Galatians. But if they say anything different than the Christ, the great messenger, the perfect prophet, it's false. We put our livestock, our life stock, in the arrival of the manger. That's your confidence, church. He's your confidence. The, pro- the perfect prophet is the ultimate messenger from God. And secondly, the perfect prophet is the ultimate message from God. I think the gospel is really contained right here in verse 3. I've said very often, if you were to boil down the movie of the Bible, a good movie trailer would be Romans 6.23. It's what we go over in all our new members class and time I meet with somebody, Romans 6.23. But also, at this segment of verse 3 of Hebrews 1 is also the gospel right here in this little verse. So let's walk through it, the perfect message from the perfect messenger. First and foremost, your every breath is being sustained by Jesus. Today, right now, your every breath is being sustained by Jesus. It says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All things were created through him and for him, his almighty wise word. When we celebrate the birth of Christ in the manger, we celebrate the one fully God, fully man who is maintaining all the universe in its molecular composition. And he is moving all things forward for his own purposes and his own glory, the glory of God. That's the one in the manger. So there's this basic understanding from the very beginning of the gospel message is that I am not the creator and I'm not even the sustainer of my life. God is sustaining me. We make plans and we, make, and we put things into our calendar. I'm going to do this and this. But the Lord ultimately sustains us. Kings of the earth, they draw forth plans and and, and manipulative tactics possibly. But the Lord sustains us. There's this basic element of understanding I am dependent upon the Creator. And it walks right into the, the verse continues. We see secondly that only those who trust in Jesus will be made pure before God. Jesus perfectly sustained me, sustains my every breath and one day Is it a weird thought to think one day no breath will go past your tongue? One day for every one of us in this room and outside of these walls, there will be a day when breath will not come out of our mouth. And the breath we take right now is sustained by the arrival of that Jesus that you and I know that we are sinful, full of sin, and sinful inclination, and we are broken. And only those who trust in Jesus will be made pure before God. Look what the verse says, after making purification for sins. After making purification for sins. Our sins needed to be made pure. It's why our king came in obedience to the Father. After, there's no other way. So Jesus didn't come to to win a Gerber baby competition. 
that he came to make purification for not just general sins, but personal, particular sins. Our lustful inclinations. He died for us. For my sins, the baby would come. It's only him. I'm not able to clean myself up. I can, I can well, physically wash myself, and I can try to, to look nicer, but I can't clean up my inside, and neither can you. In, in most marriage counseling contexts, isn't that a lot of the frustration? In most family counseling contexts, isn't that a lot of the frustration? I've tried everything, and I can't change them. And in discipline in our own life, we, we were so captivated by anything and everything that can promise us, here's the fix, I'll finally be changed. I'll finally be right. None of us can make ourselves pure. We can't go to church enough. You can't be baptized enough. You can't take the Lord's Supper enough. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough. You can't make the church staff enough chocolate chip cookies on a Monday morning. Just let subliminally put that one in. <laughs> Nothing we can do to clean ourselves up. Not 0.1% of our sin can be atoned for by ourselves or by another person sitting around you. It was the little baby that would come. It was the eternal son that would take on flesh to make purification for sins. Purification is being ritually made clean according to the standards and means that the Lord has established for us. That is why Jesus came. The word after tells us there's no other way. Jesus is not a way or he would have never come. It's not like God was saying, hey, there's a bunch of ways that would work out, but uh, let's just add one more to it. Here's a plus one to the equation. No, he is the only way. That's why he came. That's why we celebrate the arrival. The arrival and the celebration of Christmas is itself, is itself, think about it, is itself a statement that Jesus is the only way. If there was another way, it wouldn't have happened. But it happened because there was no other way. Do you believe that in your life, Christian? That it's not that you believe this and this is what works for you because you live in Texas and this is what most people do, but this is true because it's the only way. It's all the hope that we have. Only in Jesus, fully God, fully man, do I have hope. Only he can pay for my sin and make me pure before God. After making purification for sins, only those who trust in Jesus will be made pure before God. And see, Jesus' redeeming work is finished. It is finished. There is no other way to a relationship with God. It's finished. The verse says this. He sat down at the right hand the majesty on high. He sat down. The baby would accomplish the mission. He lived the sinless life we have not lived, cannot live, will not live. He lived. He paid the price we're not qualified to pay. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father. The confidence for the Christian, the assurance for the Christian is in the Christ. Are you a Christ one? Have you trusted in Christ as the one? As your one? 
If you look to Christ, you find a perfect Savior. Psalm 110.1, the most quoted verse in all the Old Testament referenced in the New Testament, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ alone is able to make you pure. Look to Christ and be made clean. Abide in Christ to find joy and purpose, to glorify God, to make disciples. This is our calling. And I thank the Lord that he's called us to partner together to do so. That's our king. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. The Christian faith is not morality. The Christian faith, what we do on every Sunday, is not about rights and wrongs and doing rights and wrongs and becoming better at doing rights and wrongs. The Christian faith is not morality. It's not some scheme for settling international disputes. Nothing like that. Christianity, listen, in its essence is Christ. He is the beginning. He is the end. He is fully God. He is fully man. One person. The arrival of the one in the manger. He's our hope. Do you know him? Do you love him? He loves you. The Father would send him to die for you that you might live and walk in him. He is good. Our next steps. How will the significance of understanding, I, I phrase it into one statement, one statement, one statement, one question. How will the significance of understanding Jesus as the ultimate messenger and message from God impact my life as we approach Christmas. We to reorient our lives around Christ. Christmas is a unique opportunity still in our culture that even a world that doesn't know, they know of the baby Jesus. Maybe they've seen a manger picture or something, but they don't know Jesus. It's a unique opportunity in our lives where unbelievers will go and they'll put lights on their houses representing the light of the world ironically, and yet never know Jesus as king. It's a day in which they will give gifts to each other, representing the great gift that the Father would give us and the gift of the Son who would take on flesh and dwell among us, live a sinless life, and lay his life down for us. They'll give gifts completely absent of the reality of what they're doing. It's an unbelievable opportunity to reorient our lives, to say, Jesus, I truly believe in your arrival. You are the perfect Messenger and the perfect message for my life. Search my life, Lord. Find the areas I'm trying to find my worth and identity in something else. Prune it and shape me into your image because I am yours and you are mine. We have true rest in Christ. He is our life. We serve him. Let me pray before we stand and sing to him together as an offering before our king. Oh, Lord, we thank you we thank you for your arrival. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would come and you would take on flesh and dwell among us. Lord, we thank you that you know us intimately. We thank you that you know all the full depths of our sin. And Lord, the areas of our life, I pray, the areas of every one of our lives where we're tempted to minimize our sin, to pretend that it's no serious deal, to help us appreciate it this time as we celebrate the arrival of, of, of Jesus, 
that he truly made a payment for our sin, that he truly is the ultimate message and messenger, that our worth and our value is in Christ, that we can truly be your adopted children, that as your adopted kids, we live out with joy in a broken world, and we're given the responsibility to call others to come and to know you as king, to know the perfect messenger and the perfect message. You love us more than we love others. You love us more than we love ourselves. Help us, Lord, as a response to give of our voice to you and to surrender our lives before you in every relationship and every decision that you bring before us this week. We love you and we are yours. God, you are the potter, we are the clay. You are good and you are our everything. Thank you for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said together, amen. Let's stand and sing together.